It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of Roka Report Isolation Podcasts. So Chris, just maybe a bit of a confession, I suppose, is all of our listeners are well aware at this point, we are still recording from our homes. We've had varying degrees of success whilst doing so, but this is actually your second appearance now on the Roka Report Podcast. You and I spoke a little over two or three weeks ago now, and we were absolutely plagued with connection issues throughout. So I just want to say, before we kind of get into things, a massive thank you again on behalf of us all for taking the time to speak with me again and fingers crossed we'll get through this one unscathed no problem at all i've i'll be honest with you chris i've been you know kind of racking and doing a lot of notes whilst going through this in preparation for today because there will be a lot of our younger listeners who will mainly associate you with your time at wales and your time at sunderland but you know there's so much more to obviously your time obviously you had quite the playing career also um you began your career at manchester city leaving as a teenager to make your debut for hometown Swansea City, and after nearly 200 games, he then moved on to Crystal Palace. Um, interestingly, whilst I was sat prepping the notes for today, I'm not sure, perhaps it was face, but I had Premier League years on in the background just whilst I was making some notes. And by the time I look up, it's January 1995. It's Palace versus United, Sellers Park. And Eric Cantona has just been sent off oh, for yeah. a final on Richard Shaw. <laughs> so along with Gareth Southgate... You're one of the first ones to to be brave and run over to Eric Cantona. And I don't think anybody could have predicted the Kung Fu kick and what was to follow. What do you no, remember about well, that? Night? In those days, it was always a fracas. It was always a little, obviously, a lot more run on in them days on the pitch than it does now. Because now, you know, most of the lads, even if they wanted to get a little bit feisty with each other, they can't. There's cameras everywhere. Um, in them days, you know, you get away with a lot and a lot went on, but never ever. In a wildest nightmares, thought that Eric would actually jump into the crowd and start, um, start you know kicking off with uh, with one of the supporters. Um, it was just it was a great game as well because obviously United going for the title. We were fighting for our lives to stay up, but uh, we knew it would be a feisty game. But could never have ever nobody would have uh, thought we were going to witness what we did, um, which was a shame as well for Eric and United because he missed the rest of the season. I think, Absolutely. Six, six months, I think he was suspended for afterwards. Well, as you said, I mean, United going for the title, I think getting a draw with them at that particular time was was pretty much the equivalent of a win, really. It was that big. So it was a shame that it perhaps did overshadow um, what was a, a very, very big result. And like I said, it's still doing the round on Sky Sports now. So it's still obviously a massive deal. Um, of course, after leaving Palace, you then spend a year and a half with 
Premier League champions Blackburn Rovers before signing for Fulham. And now, yeah. interestingly, at that stage, that was the highest fee paid by a third division club, a record which was only beaten last season when Sunderland signed Will Gregg. Um, <laughs> you quickly become club captain and you played a crucial role in helping the side to two promotions. Uh, however, your career was effectively ended midway through that 2000-2001 season after you broke your leg in a car crash. Um, just how difficult was that to come to terms with when you're at the peak of your career, you're on course for promotion again, I think it was two and three years. How difficult is that to wrap your head around that it's it's pretty much over and, and, and it's all coming to an end then? Yeah, it was uh, brutal, yeah. I think I was, like, I was 30, I was playing the best football in my career, I was in the best condition I'd ever been in my career. We'd had a new French coach, Jean Tagana, who arrived at Fulham and he implemented all these new ideas about, you know, how we, you know, we, we changed everything. The way we played, the way we trained, the way we lived, changed everything. And, it, and for me personally, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. You know, it was, uh, I'd, I'd become a new player almost and I was absolutely flying. So then I had the car crash, of course, and pretty quickly after that, it was evident that I was never going to get back to where I was. Um, and that was, yeah, it was brutal, you know, to um, have, have that taken away. Well, it's my own fault. I mean, I was the one that smashed myself up in the car, so only myself to blame there. But it was, uh, when you, when, you don't realise when, when, when you're playing as a player, um, you think it's going to last forever. You, you, you can't help. Sometimes you do take it for granted because it's all you know, um, and it's human nature. But it's when it's not there, and when it's taken away, especially if it's taken away earlier than you expected, then I'm not sure I ever recovered 100% from it because I still, to this day, I still miss playing and um, I do anything to, to be able to, 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 to play another game of football. You know, it was, it was everything for me. It was the build-up of the games. It was in the dressing room with the rest of the players and it was the, the adrenaline and the, the anxiety of, you know, when you need the result, you need a performance, you're up against it. The excitement of all that, um, you know, was the roar of the crowd. All you know, all, all the romance that comes with football. I was completely besotted with it all, and uh, and then when it was it was gone, it was uh, yeah, it was a real, real hard, hard situation from that I found myself in. Um, and I just threw myself into the coaching side, and I was given a lifeline by Jean Tagana. Them, he was over there, the, the French manager that that I already told you about, and. I just I just dived into that and tried to you know you know some some guys who go from players to coaching or to managing they they some of them prefer coaching or managing to playing but for me playing it was the best best days of your life and thankful that I got there, I think fifteen or fifteen years whatever I got as a player um, thank very thankful for that but those last five or six years I could have got um, I'm always going to miss that unfortunately. Well, as you said, um, it pretty much led you down the, the coaching path. Um, you began at Fulham, basically following, um, obviously, with John Tagane. He was, he was obviously good enough to, to give you a role on the backroom staff. And it eventually led to you becoming the youngest Premier League manager at the age of 32. And I'll be honest, that's something that I can't quite get my head around because that would be me stood on a touchline when Premier League football returns. And I'm just thinking of, at such a young age, um, I mean, you're literally fresh out of the game were you daunted somewhat by the experience or, you know, being club captain and being such a big vocal character in the dressing room, did you just jump in with two, two feet? I, I did. You know what? I ended, I ended up, the only difference, Craig, is because 32 is young. The only difference is between you and me doing it is my ego is probably bigger than yours. And I told myself <laughs> I, could do it. 
<laughs> do you know what I mean? So I was thinking, I can do this. I'll have a crack at this. And no, that's just my, it was my ego. I was, I was nowhere near ready for it, but I jumped in. And it was sink or swim because a lot of, unfortunately, it's getting harder and harder. And a lot of guys now who don't last their first year in management, you know, they, they don't go on and manage anywhere else. It's so yeah. brutal. I was, you know, I, I, I jumped in feet first. I thought, right, let's have a go. And thankfully, the first year went very, very well. And, um, you know, I, I've been in it ever since. But, uh, yeah, 32 was very, very young to, um, to manage a Premier League club. I'd been the captain of the t- team and um, I'd been at the club for five years. So, I, you know, I pretty much knew the ins and outs of it all. And obviously, it was four years that you had with Fulham. Um, and, and obviously, that's where you basically you cut your teeth and you learned your trade. Um, after leaving, you had spells in charge of Real Sociedad, moving on to Coventry City, and then eventually Greekside Larissa. Um, and then it was on the 19th of January 2012 where you were appointed manager of Wales. Now, whilst on one hand, undoubtedly, it must have been an absolute lifelong dream, but I can't imagine just how difficult it was for you to step into the role under those circumstances. Yeah, I think um, on one point it was it was it was the is the ultimate for me, you know, to lead lead my country. And but the reason the job was available was the ultimate nightmare. Um, just listen, if anybody's ever lost one of their friends, you know, they'll tell you the same. How oh, that feels? It's oh, that situation occurred. You're still really looking back, still still can't wrap my head around what happened. I don't think anybody can. Is just and, and Speedo, such a such a top top yeah. fella and such a huge mess, you know. So it was, yeah. It was it was the extremes of of, of both worlds, extreme in, in a bad way, and obviously anybody that's got the opportunity to be a manager of the country, if that's you know the industry they're in, then you're going to take that mm-hmm. opportunity. But in that situation, yeah, it was um, extremes at uh, both ends of the of the scale. The depression is the word I'd use because you know everybody was so sad and down. Yeah, quite rightly, as you say, um, Gary was a, a huge loss to everybody. Um, not just in Wales and in, in football in general. Um, and as you've said, it was it was quite unthinkable at the time. You know, that's still quite hard to wrap wrap your head around, really, um, still to this day. Obviously, as you began your, your first campaign, it, it didn't go into plan. It was a bit of a disaster. And it's fair to say that Wales surpassed everybody's expectations by getting as far as they did in Euro 2016. There was a tough-to-swallow defeat to England aside, but you played with enormous freedom and determination. You know, Slovakia were beaten, Russia were completely outclassed, and then Northern Ireland were edged out in the last 16. But it was that night in Lille against Belgium where it was just a completely different story, really. It was one-way traffic for the first 25 minutes, and it's perhaps easy to fear the worst when you go 1-0 down. But you weather the storm, credit to your side, and by half-time you've taken complete control. Now, Ashley Williams equalises before Hal robson Canu puts you ahead, and then with five minutes to go, it's Chris Gunter who finds himself in the final third perhaps typical of that Wales size, unwilling to run down the clock. Now, six words that came from your mouth before perhaps the moment of a lifetime in Welsh football. <laughs> Don't cross that effing ball, Christopher. So talk me through the emotions where Sam Vokes gets on the end of that cross to seal the win. Well, I'm a typical manager, aren't I? I'm always thinking the worst. And I'm thinking, just run to the corner flag, get your elbows up, and anybody comes near you, just, you know, just get your elbows up, protect the ball, run the clock down, 2-1, you know, we're nearly there. But obviously, Chris had other ideas, and thankfully, he had other ideas. And when he, I mean, it was a super cross. I think he saw Sam was 
had the run on the defender than the opposed. So he, he's clipped it in at the, at the front post. It was a perfect cross and, and the header, you know, the, the header don't come much better than that. You know, he was it was past Courtois before he even moved. And uh, that was, you know, that gave us a... That gave us the win, basically, which the feeling was indescribable, really. So having taken Wales further than anybody could have quite possibly imagined to the last four of the country's first major tournament in 58 years, ranked eighth in the world, you yourself were included on a 10-man shortlist for FIFA Coach of the Year. So why on earth did you off for Sunderland? Um, at that time, we are rock bottom of the championship. We hadn't won a home game in almost a full calendar year. And with an owner in Ella Short desperate to sell, why Sunderland at that time, especially when the Premier League second season was in full swing? I brought the Cardinals in for managers. I, I picked the club and not the chairman, and that can be dangerous, which I found out to my detriment. But the Sunderlands are an absolute super club. It's a great club. And I, I just thought, you know, whoever turns that round there, and it will it will get turned round, and whoever does that, they'll know all about what it's like to be at a proper club. And I just always, I wanted to be at a big club. I wanted to have the opportunity to build something. You know, I'd had six years with Will where I, I was given a bit of time and then I built it into what, what I wanted and it was fantastic. And I just wanted to do that with Sunderland. Now, yeah, international management and club management is different, but sooner or later I was going to come back into club management and everybody said, you don't, don't go because they're rock bottom, club's falling apart, German selling. But I thought somebody would come in and buy the club because it's a great club and they'll see the opportunity that they can build. And I wanted to be a part of that and I thought I could... I thought I could turn it round. I knew it wouldn't be quick, but I thought I could turn it round. And um, I don't regret my decision uh, for coming to Sunderland because I met some of the best people I've ever met uh, in my time when I was up there. I regret signing the contract for the chairman because to this day, I don't understand why he got me in because he never, ever spoke to me. Not one word, uh, not one phone call, not nothing. So I don't understand why he wanted to bring the club to, to then just abandon myself and the club especially in that first transfer window, which was all important, where we, we were desperate for some financial support and we got absolutely zero on the back of losing five of starting 11 players, Johnny Williams, Duncan Watmore. We lost uh, Robin Wright, the keeper. We lost um, the Strato striker. Um, Grabin went back to Bournemouth, which was his club when he was in his contract. There's nothing we could do to stop him to go back, going back to his club. Uh, who else? We lost Darren Gibson. You know, it, the list was it was alarming. And it, I always said, even if we had them, said we still needed to bring in some reinforcements because we had players at the club that we really needed out of the dressing room because, you know, they weren't part of the fight and we needed to get them out. And we needed an injection of two or three players anyway on top of what we had. Once we lost those five players, then the alarm bells were, you know, ringing in everybody's ears, except for the chairman's ear. Um, we just didn't want to know. So, you know, that... You know, I've always got a lump of concrete in my stomach when I think of that because it, it didn't have to happen like that. Um, but I don't regret going to Sunderland for the club and for the people because they were absolutely superb. And I found out what it was like to be at a big club. All right, yeah, we were rock bottom of the championship. We ended up getting relegated. Still a big club. I found out what it was like to, to be a part of that. So when the position's offered, were you given any you know indication of whether you'd have any money to work with? Is it made clear at that point to say, look, Ellis has completely cut us off and you're going to work with what you've got? Is, was it was made crystal clear then? Or? Martin was, Martin Baines was totally honest. He showed me all the contracts of the players, uh, which, you know, I was alarmed at some of them, if I'm honest. But um, I said, OK, so let me see, what, let me see where, where we are and where we need to get to. Uh, and he said, look, you know, the chairman's cut, the, you know, he's 
completely severed ties with the club and he wants to sell. But I'm thinking, well, he's probably a smart man to be where he is. So surely in this transfer window, it's in his benefit to sell a club from the championship and not the league below. But he, he, he never thought like that. So I went in, no, I went into it with my eyes totally wide open. I didn't expect no phone call. I didn't expect no meeting with the chairman. I didn't expect nothing whatsoever in terms of contact or one word between the manager and the chairman. That is, I don't know another manager that's ever experienced that. When I tell other managers, they laugh at me. They, 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 they can't get wrapped their head around that. But that is just, just bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. So I never expected that. Even if I got told no, no, sorry, Chris, I can't give you that. Or you're not having that. Or you need to sell him and then you can have a bit of that back. There was absolutely nothing. Nothing. And that was uh, that was pretty disastrous for me, to be honest with you. And um, so, But I was not. My eyes were wide open in terms of I knew we were bottom. I knew we were selling the club. I knew the changing room needed a lot of um, tinkering with, let's say, let, let's put it that way. Um, but I didn't know that we'd be left hung out to dry um, in terms of uh, the relationship with uh, the owner of the club. You mentioned Martin Bain, and understandably, he's not a popular figure up here. Um, we know that he was appointed by Ella Shaw to oversee mass redundancies and a series of cost-cut measures. But as you've said, he was severely hamstrung by the inability to, to move those players on on the ridiculously high wages and bring in fresh bodies to give us a chance. Um, so it did, I suppose, from from my perspective, seem to sum up what looked like an impossible situation. But what was he like to work with? He was 100% transparent, honest, very hardworking. And he knew he was the scapegoat because he was the front man for some time there because Ellis never showed his face. And of course, those are not Martin, I, Martin Bain's ideas. Everything's got to go. That's obviously coming from the chairman because yeah. he's, he's bringing in his, the, the, the money. So he was... 100% honest with me and transparent, very hard work. And I saw him go above and beyond to try to make things as best as he could. Um, and he knew, and he, I know Martin felt awful because he was being like pointed and fingered for loads of things that had happened. And because he's the chief executive, he knows that you know, he's got to carry that can, but you know, he was hung out to dry. Listen, the Sunderland fans will have their own opinion on him, of course. I can only be as honest as as I've ever been with, with, with the Sunderland fans and say from a, from a, from a working relationship and from close hand, worked his socks off, stood right beside me. And it was a shame because I think he was at a, a great club and he knows himself hard in that, you know, of course he's going to be known there for two years or three years of, or it was turmoil, wasn't it? So Martin knows that when he walks through the door, just like myself, when I walk through the door, you know what can happen if it goes wrong. Martin's a big boy and you can handle that. But from a personal opinion, personal point of view, um, no, he, uh, he, worked, he worked his socks off, Martin. At what stage of the contract negotiations were you made aware of the Netflix documentary? I mean, given the choice, ideally, I'm sure that perhaps you wouldn't have wanted the cameras to follow you around, especially where we were at that time. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, I'd already signed the contract and then <laughs> it must have been a... It must have the, the club just must have forgot to tell me because I'd already signed the contract, and then it was oh well, we just got to tell you, Chris, that there's a documentary <laughs> from Netflix, and I said, oh, well, what, what? What's that? And they said, look, we've been doing this documentary, blah blah blah. I said, look, well, ideally I would have known that before beforehand. I'm not sure I would have changed my mind anyway. Probably still would have come to Sunderland because just I wanted to come to Sunderland. Um, but I said, look, there's just nobody's coming in the dressing room. I'll, I'll, I'll speak as much as I can. They can come in my office at the right time. And 
they've got some here and there, but uh, there's absolutely no way of of anybody coming in the dressing room. And um, and that's just me because now you see Man City have got one, Pep Guardiola is you know the cameras in the dressing room, and you know it's you know it's just people. People are different. I just don't. I just I, I wasn't comfortable with that at all, and especially in the circumstances we were in. It was all hands on deck, fan down the ashes. Um, uh, it's everybody against us. Let's keep everything in house, keep it nice and tight. The last thing I wanted was a camera, but you know they were there to follow us around. Um, and in all, you know, all honesty, I can't say that they did a bad job for us, and or they ever uh, went behind our back, or they leaked something that shouldn't have been. I, I, I can't, I can't point fingers at them. It was a bit of a bit of a burden because you know we're not used to that, but uh, they never, uh, they never stabbed any of us in the back. So I've got to ask. I mean, I know first and foremost that you haven't seen the show from our previous conversation. I can't. Yeah, I can't. I, I, you know, Craig, I still can't bring myself to watch it. It's such a such a painful. You know, when we ended up getting relegated, that 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 was it was just bloody awful. And you know, it was it was such a painful time. And it's such big hopes. And you know, I drawn out plan to be there for quite some years if I couldn't. Maybe I'm a dreamer and I'm a romantic, but I, I was looking at it like that to try. Slowly turn the team round, turn the team into something different. Dynamic about the team, um, and maybe I tried to work too quickly. Maybe I angered one or two of the senior players and tried to nudge them too quickly. I don't know, but I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what was needed, and you know, I I was held bent on doing it. But um, sadly, of course, you know that that never came. But I can't because it turned out so badly for everybody, and I we, we let the club down because we never stayed up. I just can't bring myself to watch it. So one of the four, the main kind of moments which always um, does the rounds very heavily discussed is when you first get a tour of Black Cat's house and you meet the staff. And um, basically one of the members of staff approaches you and she asks outright, you know, are you interested in taking part in the office secrets? Santa, and it's an incredible deflection from you because you just basically changed the steer of the conversation and said, tell you what I am actually interested in is one of those chocolates. So did he actually take part in the office secrets, Santa, or was it just the case of you managed to blag you out of that one? You know, I I, I wasn't blagging. I, I've got a uh, honestly, I'm a uh, I love a bit of chocolate. I do when we were in there. <laughs> we we were meeting everybody, uh, and they were absolutely smashing. They were lovely, the staff. They were absolutely smashing. And I remember saying to Kit, you know what, we can go to war with with, with these because they'll fight for us. They'll battle for us this lot because they love the club. They know you can you could sense it on these people, right? And uh, and Kit Simon said, "Yeah, he said I got a really good vibe." Um, and then we were talking. Somebody asked me about that, and I remember it. And it, but then we, we were, as we were walking on the tables because it was like early or mid December. There was just like tins of quality street and chocolates everywhere. And I was like a kid in a candy shop, and that's when it. <laughs> I went straight for the chocolate, um, and I wasn't blagging. Honestly, I wasn't. I really wasn't blagging. I just went straight for the chocolates. <laughs> So as you've already touched on, you mentioned how difficult the January transfer window was. And I mean, our survival hopes were dealt a massive blow when Lewis Graben returned to Bournemouth um, before eventually moving on to Aston Villa. Now, although he insists he was recalled by the club rather than chosen to leave, um, I've spoken with a few of the players now from that particular squad and they've all said that it wasn't very pleasant to be around. It was quite disruptive and he was keen to activate the clause that allowed that deal to be cut short. Now, is it right that he didn't actually speak with you about leaving and he went directly to Martin Bain? I never got one word from Lewis. Um, listen, maybe he never forgive me because I substituted him and I put Josh Madger on and Josh Madger scored and we beat Fulham. Yeah. 
I took two strikers off, put two young strikers on, um, just to try to win the game and won one nil. I know maybe that was a is an effect, an after effect of that. I don't know. Um, but he, Lewis never came to see me, which disappointed me. If he'd have come to see me and said, "Look, Chris, you know, I'm being recalled to Bournemouth. I got a chance to go back to Bournemouth and play it's the Premier League," you know, I still would have said, "Look, just can you not just give us till the end of the season to see where we are." And even if he said, look, no, no, I want to be in the Premier League, then I get that. You know, I said, OK, um, he got wind about six weeks before that he couldn't trigger the clause in his contract to go back to Bournemouth. So we were, we were singing, like, just in case we need to be looking for someone else. So, you know, we, were, we had everything, all our ducks in a row, but we still didn't want him to go back. And then when he actually went back, no, I never, he never came to see me. He said, I think you went to see Martin. Not one word to me. And that was, uh, you know, Obviously, he didn't want to play for me or didn't want to play for Sunderland. Or, or he may, he'd probably say, because it's easier to say he didn't want to play for me because he wouldn't want to disappoint the Sunderland fans. That's up to him to answer that question. I was just there trying to keep everybody there that we needed that could help us. And of course, he could help us. He didn't want to be there, but he never came to see me, Lewis, to say that he was leaving. Not. Well, that is a message that you set out pretty much from the offset when you came in to basically say, look, whatever's happened in the past, you know, I, I don't particularly care. Exactly like you've said there, you just want to keep us in the championship. And you questioned the desire of Jack Rodwell at the time to basically say, you know, kind of, why aren't you partaking in this? And a lot was made out of, you know, how much money he was paid. And it just seemed that he went absolutely airwall. So, I mean, why do you think he didn't buy into the vision? Why is it with Jack Rodwell? Do you think that he's just, you know, being one of those players where he's just permanently been on the outside of things? You'd have, do you know what? You'll have to ask Jack that Craig and say, you know, how comes, you know, this is how old you are and you've only played this this many games. You'd have to ask Jack that. And we can all assume, and even me, when I was, you know, I was there, I was I was making the decisions, uh, picking the teams. And the first day's training, and I remember saying to Kit Simons after the session, 10 minutes before the end of the session, I said that this Rodwell, he's, he's a really good player. What an athlete, good footballer. And right before the end of the session, he, he, he'd come off injured. And Kip looked at me and as if to say, wow. Because, um, of course, you know, you, you did stories about, it's like players talk about managers and coaches. Coaches and managers talk about players. You know, that's the industry we're in. And I said, oh, no. I said, that's, that's a real bad sign. Because we were playing the next day. Um, and he would have, Jack would have played. Sorry, we were, we, this was on the Sunday we trained. We were playing on the Tuesday at Aston Villa, our first game. And Jack would have started the game. But last five minutes in training, he came off injured and, I thought, oh, that's, that's a big body blow for us. And we never really had him back after that. His injury after injury. And, you know, so, yeah, I I, I did question, you know, what, what's the point in, you work so hard as a kid to try and be a professional football player. Forget the money, forget all that nonsense. You love football, you want to be a professional football player. You get the chance to be a, a professional football player and play for any club. You, you grab that with both hands and you yeah. don't let go. If you're lucky enough and you're good enough to play at higher levels, you make the most of that and you make the most of every minute. I don't care who you are, you make the most of every minute. Because most people who, who go and watch clubs every week, they will give their right arm to they trade places with you to be on that pitch playing football because they love football. And that's how it should be. I don't care. I'm not, you know, it's just because I had my career 20 years ago when I finished, it should still be the same now. Simple as that. So, you know what? Sometimes you see players is a little bit of slippage. They do take things for granted. I probably did as a player myself. Um, but you've got to crack yourself back into shape, give yourself a shake and say, you know, let's go understand where I am. My, my responsibility, I'm a professional. That's what I'm called, a professional. I've got to, and I've got to give everything I've got. And if you're not seeing that, consistently 
not saying that with any individual. What are you going to do? You're going to shut your mouth and just let it let it go, or you're going to say, "Hold on a minute, this is not right." You know, I'm not in agreement with what's going on here. Now, of course, we're going to get stories back. Oh, well, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. But then you've got to look at a five a five year period and go, "Well, in those last five years, you've played so many games, you've missed fifty or sixty percent of games. Why is that?" And I think we're all entitled to ask those questions, and uh, and that's all I was doing. So I'm purely speculating when I say this, but. Do you think, I mean, along with Jack Rodwell, that a lot of those lads perhaps struggled to play at the Stadium of Light that season? I mean, the patience of the fan base was obviously tested and consequently the atmosphere inside the ground was was dead pretty much every other Saturday and more often than not it would work to the benefit of the opposition. So do you think it's one of those, you know, kind of if your brain's not in the right mood for it, you're finished, you just don't have the, the desire or the fight for it anymore? Yeah, but it's, it's too easy, isn't it, to walk away from the fight, walk away with not a scratch on you. I tell you what, well, the feeling of doing that's not very nice when you turn your back on it. Yeah, and, and you may get away from the spotlight and the criticism, but you've got to go and put your head on the pillow at night and you've got to live with yourself. You know, my, my father always said to me, you, you never, you'll never win every challenge you went to, no matter what it is in life, but make sure you're not on your hands and knees, crawling away, getting kicked up the arse in defeat. Make sure you've thrown a few punches back. And if you lose, you lose. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you duck in it, then, it, you know, that, that feeling's not a good one. Yeah. So, yeah, there was the stadium was half empty and the supporters were really angry. And they had every right to be angry. Of course, they wouldn't be. All you got to do there is roll your sleeves up and, and stick your chest out and be as honest as you can. And then they'll forgive you. They'll forgive you for coming up short. But I tell you what, they, and especially up there, they will not forgive you coming up short and not giving of your best. Then, then you can't. And if you're doing that consistently, it's the end of you. And that's, you know, that's that's what happened to us. So whilst I think perhaps every player involved in that season can maybe take an even share of the blame, um, it was all goalkeepers that were perhaps one of the main differences between staying up and, and relegation. And I remember at the time Sky Sports ran a feature to suggest that the goalkeeping errors cost us in excess of 30 points. And I mean, whilst those points aren't necessarily a given, obviously, it certainly could have changed our fortunes. So for you as a manager on the training pitch Monday to Friday, how how difficult is that for you to try and lift the mood when the players are repeatedly making the same mistakes? Well, yeah. And then when, what happens because players are human beings, they're making mistakes um, and then they lose confidence um, and then the mistakes keep happening. Whereas if you can, if you see somebody, a player that's struggling, especially a goalkeeper, such an important position and they're struggling and, they're, and they've had, they're making a few mistakes, you can whip, take them out and protect them if you've got good cover um, or if you've got enough cover. But if all you, if all your goalkeepers are making mistakes, you're in a bit of trouble. And of course, not, you know, we're not, I'm not pointing fingers at our goalkeepers when I was there. I made mistakes myself. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a common theme uh, and it was, you know, there was nothing we could do about it. There was absolutely nothing we could do about it. And um, if you don't have any money to go and, and try to make a deal happen, then, you know, then you're going to get what you're going to get. So, uh, you know, that was a position where, yeah, that we, we, we struggled. So it was, it was leaked at the time um, by a few sources that basically the deals that were done, we knew that the club basically weren't paying an awful lot or sometimes, if anything, for some of the lads that were brought in. Now, the lads that we did bring in, Ashley Fletcher, Jay Clark, Salter, Ovi Ajari, they're all regular starters in the championship now. Yeah. So, so in their case, do you think it was just quite simply maybe right players at the wrong time, maybe a little too early in their careers, perhaps? Because right now, I mean, pretty much all three of them are doing very well in the championship. Yeah, I think, well, like Jake was really young, Fletch was young, and that's what we had to go to because if you're going for 
players who had five years' experience in the Championship or any type of Premier League experience, then they were going to cost more money. And more money is what we didn't have. No money is what we had to play with. So when you've got no money to play with, then those are the players that you're going to have to go and get, players with no experience, but they're good. They're, athletic. they're going to be good in time. They may not just be ready. But we had no choice. And we, had, we needed numbers. Um, and, you know, we got these lads in. They did their best, but they, they, they're young. You know, and for all the Ajaria playing at the Stadium of Light, you may have come out of Liverpool's reserves. Completely different to play for Sunderland's first team in a championship relegation dogfight. But that's what we had. But we had to take the chance with Jake and Fletch. Um, and they showed glimpses that what was going to come, we just needed more of it. And we, we never had more of it. That's not, it wasn't their fault. Um, they, they, those boys give them their best. They don't have any, uh, you know, don't have any bad words to say about those boys. They walked into an absolute mess and a dogfight. But that's what we, we needed numbers. We needed players. I mean, towards the end of the season, we did have a little resurgence, if you like, with a very good win at Derby. And then we went through that period of where we were winning games and then conceding very late. And that's what put us in that perilous position for the Burton game. Now, we go 1-0 up and we're relatively comfortable. And then, of course, Darren Bent comes back to haunt us, as perhaps we all could have expected. But now, when I left the ground that day, like a lot of fans I spoke with, for about an hour afterwards, I did not have a clue that we were relegators. And... It was rumoured after reading things in the press that that was the case for a lot of the players as well. So was was everybody in the dressing room that day aware of what would happen unless we took maximum points? Absolutely, yeah. We knew after the game was walking from the pitch to the dressing room was the longest walk of my career. And being in the dressing room, not knowing what to say is uh, is lonely. I'd like to make an excuse and say, but we thought we had another game. No, 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 no. We knew the consequences there of not winning that game. We should have won the game. It was only with... Same old thing, one nil up, sat too deep, wishing our life away rather than yeah. keep going. Last five or ten minutes, maybe you can shut the shop up. You can't do that for 45 minutes. And uh, it was just this is typical, you know, you dead right, Craig Gill, winning at Leeds, we end up conceding, we drew one one, winning at Reading, games like that where we didn't put them to bed. And those those two points dropped, they're massive. You know, home to Norwich again. Uh there's about there's about eight or ten points. That's right, yeah. Was all, in the, kept all in quick succession. All in, yeah, and uh, and we didn't grab them, unfortunately. Now that day was it was enormously difficult for everyone at the football club. Emotions are obviously running sky high, and there's a lot of anger, frustration about the situation, and some of that was obviously misplaced towards some of the players and staff. Now I know there was obviously the incident outside the ground. You're you're signing autographs and you're taking picture for a family and. Sadly, it turns sour pretty quickly when a fan starts to give you a bit of a mouthful. Um, have you ever experienced anything like that before in your career as a player, as a manager? How, how do you deal with a situation like that? No, listen, I've had, I've had fans shouting criticism at, criticism at me. Sometimes I've deserved it. But on that particular day, I should have just shut my mouth because the fan in question is obviously a Sunderland fan. And that's his club. He's, he's born and bred Sunderland boy, no doubt. And that's his, you know, he'll always be his club. So as emotional as I was and, and absolutely gutted as I was, he was probably feeling twice as worse. And I should have just shut my mouth. You know, there was a there was a few swear words that came out of his mouth, which I didn't like because he was a family there. And I, and that's what, and I got angry, but I should have known better and shut my mouth. And I should have understood you know, his world's just falling apart because we've been relegated and I'm a part of that. And I should have understood uh, and just shut my mouth because, you know, that's his club. And he was obviously uh, gutted. So, yeah, but that, that's, you know, that's not in isolation because it's, it's happened to 
most managers or most players at one time or another, you just have to accept that's part of the industry. So in complete contrast to that incident, the reaction you and the players got at the Player of the Season Awards a few days later, I mean, that must have been pretty humbling that even after a season of so much negativity and disappointment, you know, that everybody still wants to speak with you in the squad, they still want to have the picture taken, they still want to, you know, just have five minutes. That was one of the most humbling experiences of my life, honestly. I remember, on the, you know, that the morning before, you know, of the evening uh, of the of the dinner, I said to my wife, I said, you know, this is going to be so difficult because we've let all these people down and I don't know how this is going to go. And, you know, my, my wife, Charlotte, said, just go be yourself, speak to people, you know, address people, um, don't hide them. I said, no, I'm not going to hide. I'd never do that. I just, I just like, you're so gutted because you've let them down. I don't know what the reaction is going to be. And of course, we walked into the big room at the stadium of life and we got, we got clapped in, which I nearly, you know, I nearly, nearly fainted, to be honest, because I, I didn't expect that. And the whole atmosphere there, there was disappointment, of course, which you'd expect, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't depressing or it wasn't like negative and there was not a hint of bitterness or nastiness. It was just disappointment. It was like, yeah, we're disappointed. Um, we're at a low point. We're all in it together. And, and we've got to try and get through it as best we can. And we can do that if we stick together. So the feeling I had walking out after that dinner, I was it was completely different to the one I had walking in because uh, it was honestly they were they were uplifting. They were brilliant with us. And you know, they were a, they were a credit to, to, to the club. They were an absolute credit. And they showed us how it should be. You know, it's not when you went in and everybody loves you and everybody's got loads of mates. It's, it's, it's the other end of it when you're struggling and, and you're looking around and you can't see a light to walk towards. You're just stuck in the middle of a dark, dark place. Um, and that's where we were. And they were the ones holding hands out, trying to guide us and say, come on, we, we just got to get get through it and we'll get through it all together. And what a feeling that was. It was honestly, it was so humbling. And uh, they, they were an absolute credit. They really were. So unusually for a lot of our recent Sunderland managers, you actually moved your family to the area and even once our fate was sealed, you still expressed that desire to stay and put matters right. You offered the chance to tear up your contract and renew on much lower wages, which would reflect in line with League One. So just how disappointing was it for you that you never got that opportunity? Yeah, I was surprised and I was I, I didn't expect to get the sack. I expected somebody to come in and say, right, he's only been here four months. He's had no money. He's They'd lost half their to start in 11 for three months of the season. I expected somebody to see it and go in football terms and actually what, you know, what, what were we expecting to happen here? Um, but no, it was, uh, no, that was it. I didn't even get, a, didn't even have a conversation with Nooch, the new owners. Um, it came, Martin pulled me, you know, he was a bit surprised and shocked and he was gutted. And I said, oh, right, Christ, because he, he'd asked me before, would I rip my contract up? if the worst came to the worst. And I said, 100%. So 100%. I said, the problem at this club is you've got people, and I've been complaining that people are earning money in a division where they shouldn't be earning. I can't be a hypocrite and expect to earn that contract in that league. You know, it's, it's, I've got to be the one that leads the way, really. So um, I said, yeah, absolutely. Of course I would. I never even got that opportunity. Um, you know, I found out. I got the sack. Uh, I got a call from Martin to say I got the sack. And then that night, the deal was done with the club for the new owners to buy the club. So it was obvious that they, they didn't want me there. So I never even had a conversation. So I know, obviously, you shocked a lot of people by taking the job up here. And then it was pretty saddened, of course, that you never got the chance to, to right those wrongs, as you've said. But perhaps you shocked people one step further by pitching up in Beijing a few months later. So 
do you, do you have any reservations about making a move like that due to language barriers and cultural differences? I mean, how much of a part does Google Translate play in your day-to-day life over there? <laughs> well, I had a translator 24-7 who's with me all the time because it's not like going to Spain or Greece where, you know, people speak English and you Spanish is not the most difficult language to, to, to learn. You can pick up loads of words and get by, but Chinese, is, you know, is pretty, pretty much impossible. It's so difficult, but we had a fantastic interpreter. Um, and I've always said I want to I want to travel as many places around the world to 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 manage or of course you to call it what you want. Um, I don't want to be stuck in one place. I want to travel. I want to I do want to see the world. So I was it came up earlier to go to China, but it wasn't the right time for me. So this time it came up. I was free agent. I said, Come on, I'll take my family. We you know we're going to go lock stock. Um, and uh, no, it was great experience. Absolutely fabulous experience. Now, it was rumoured that you held talks with Sheffield Wednesday last summer, and something tells me off the back of that answer that you're not necessarily drawn maybe to life in the Championship again, or, or perhaps even in England. So so what's next for Chris Coleman? Um, you know, beggars can't be choosers, Craig, and there's an handful of managers in the world that can choose where they go, and I'm not one of them. So something came up, and, and it really tickled my fancy, and I would. Um, and because of, of course, past experiences, you get your fingers burned once or twice, so you're a bit more careful. Um, but um, I had a, about a couple of opportunities since I've been back, well, before this coronavirus happened anyway. Um, but I didn't want to jump back in, so I just held back a little bit. But um, I want to work again. I love work and I love football. And when some something comes up that I really like, doesn't matter what it is in Timbuktu, it doesn't matter to me, um, then, I'll, uh, then I'll jump in. Brilliant. Chris? I know you said half an hour. You, you've given me 40 minutes and that's absolutely brilliant. Listen, I'll let you go. Thank you very much again. Cheers, bud. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.